0: It was also amazing to go through the archives at the Vatican. We went through one room and someone pulled out a drawer and there was a letter from Peter,
1: Saint Peter. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now, some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of this year. In anticipation of the book, we're releasing interviews from the archives this month. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. So we've been releasing the oldest ones first and proceeding chronologically. In March of 2018, Debbie spoke with interactive designer Edwin Schlossberg about his career and about the time he asked the Vatican archivists why they had cataloged so few of their historical treasures. Excuse me if this sounds disrespectful, but you've
0: had it a long time. <laughs> uh, how come so little? And he said, what's the
1: hurry? Edwin Schlossberg, after the break.
2: When we took Design Matters online, we chose Wix because it's the best platform for creating websites. I also created my personal site on it, and I can tell you from experience that it's a great platform. It really has everything I need to manage and grow my business. So go to Wix.com and check it out for yourself. How do you turn a space into an experience? How do you make someone's visit to a store, a museum, or a stadium into something memorable? Well, good architecture helps. There's also interactive design combining the physical world with the digital. Edwin Schlossberg specializes in creating interactive, immersive experiences. He started in 1977 with the Brooklyn Children's Museum. With his firm, ESI Design, he's been innovating ever since with projects like Sony's Wonder Technology Lab and Barclay Center. He's here today to talk about ESI's 40th anniversary and also his own artwork. Edwin Schlossberg, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. And when I'd like to read you an entry dated Sunday, November 29th, 1981, from the diary of Andy Warhol. He wrote this. There's a new place downtown called AMPM. I saw in the paper that Caroline and her new boyfriend Edwin Schlossberg went there the other night. And I remember our old friend Roberta from the 60s, who was the Supremes groupie, who taught art at Columbia, saying, oh, you've got to meet this absolutely brilliant boy, Edwin Schlossberg. He's so brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Caroline likes funny people. He probably was babbling intellectually, and she got fascinated. He was probably saying strange, peculiar quotations or something. So, Edwin, did you know about this? Did you ever meet Andy Warhol?
0: Yeah, many times. Actually, I made a film called Making Visible in I think two years before that for KQED in San Francisco, and he was in it. And um, it was all about how technology makes visible the things that we think are in our head between us. So yes, I knew him.
2: What was your impression of him? What was it like working together?
0: He was always really quiet and always said really interesting things. He was really brilliant, I thought.
2: And I guess he thought the same about you.
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) You never know.
2: You grew up in New York, the son of Orthodox Jewish parents. In fact, your dad was the president of your local synagogue. Mm -hmm. I also grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. How much has that influenced you?
0: Well, I think probably a lot. I mean, there are things about Judaism that are really interesting to me, like that. People refer to Jewish people as people of the word. And words have always been really interesting to me. And and the idea that the purpose of religion is to sanctify daily life, which seems really an interesting thing to do, to really appreciate everyday life. And the idea that you need no intermediary religious practice in order to have a, a word with God. You know, so that the idea is always... Puts all the responsibility on self. And so I, I think that's really interesting. And the idea, you know, how funny Jews are. And so. Why
2: do you um, think that is?
0: Um, probably because they've had to deal with really difficult things. And, uh, you know, laughing and humor is key to everything I think about.
2: Do you consider yourself to be a funny person?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I would hope so. I really see everything as being funny.
2: Your father founded a textile manufacturing business, mm-hmm. and I understand he worried that you would starve if you pursued an artist's life. Did he want you to follow in his footsteps?
0: I don't think he wanted me to be in the textile business, but I think he thought that I should have a more professional career. Doctor, a lawyer, yeah. sort of
2: Jewish exactly. kind of... Uh, and my
0: grandmother, every single time I saw her, she would take my hands and say, surgeons. These are surgeons' <laughs> hands. So, <laughs>
2: let me see your hands, yes. Edwin. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, in your book, Interactive Excellence, you wrote this. Ever since I was a child, I have been as interested in the audience as I am in the show. What were you imagining your life would be when you grew up? I
0: didn't know. Uh, I mean, I you know went to college and learned things, and I then went to graduate school and. I was always just so curious about how to describe the world. I think that one of the implicit assignments people get is this idea of finding something interesting and then telling it to someone else. That sort of was my job, I thought. And when I met Buckminster Fuller, I don't know, I guess in 76 or 77, and the thing that was so interesting to me was he thought that he could make a difference in the way the world worked. And I thought, That's a worthwhile project. That's really interesting. And he loved the idea. He had invented this thought about world game, where people, uh, world leaders, could play a game together and therefore solve world problems. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wound up running the world game program with him. So it became a fantastically interesting opportunity.
2: You stated that you learned a lot from Buckminster Fuller, both mm-hmm. negative and positive. And you said that he was fantastic at writing menus, mm-hmm. but he wasn't interested in cooking dinner. Right. So was he a big picture kind of guy and not into the details? Yeah. Is that yeah. what you meant?
0: Well, I meant yes. And he wasn't so interested in looking at the people after they ate dinner and seeing whether they were smiling. So so I decided I would be.
2: So he was more conceptual, I guess. yes. Now as far as I can tell you met him through John Cage.
0: Mhm. There's an organization called the Foundation for Performance Art and that Jasper Johns and Bob Rauschenberg and Morse Cunningham founded. And so there was a thing called 9 Evenings of Art and Technology and several people spoke at it. And this this was probably in 68 maybe 67. That, that event was one, the first time I met Bucky because he, after these speeches, they, um, Bucky and John Cage and Merce and Peter Yates and uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, all spoke at this thing one Tuesday, every Tuesday for seven weeks. And it was unbelievably interesting. They were like the most interesting people I had ever heard speak. There was a dinner afterwards at Jasper's house. And so I went to that dinner and that's when I had a long conversation with Bucky.
2: You have three degrees from Columbia University. Well, you have your master's degree, you have your Ph.D. in science and literature. Right. So why science and literature? Because
0: I thought it would be really challenging to be able to both appreciate people imagining different ways of communicating verbally and also to try to be able to describe the physical world. Both of those things seem to me to be interesting ways to learn about the world. And so I thought I would try to connect those Two disciplines.
2: I read that back then in 1968. You said that you wanted to roll the Earth flat, <laughs> and then sell tickets for the show. Right. So, so what does that mean?
0: Well, it was that was Bucky Fuller's, Buckminster Fuller's idea, which was that he wanted to create a, a game that people could play. So that was a sort of metaphor of that idea. But John McHale, who was an amazing artist, who became Buckminster Fuller's sort of right hand man, he and I wrote a book together called projects for an immoral future, which was like ways to improve the world. But it was a humorous book. And one of the projects was to roll the earth flat and then be able to uh, look at it.
2: When you were working on the game concept development, um, Ron Feldman, your gallerist, stated this about the experience. That was ed, game playing, education, and a great concern for humankind. What gave you the sense that being able to articulate futures through game playing was something that could give you a sense of humanity.
0: Well, it seemed to me that the, that the, um, one of the Bucky's ideas in this book called Spaceship Earth was that we were living in a closed system, even though everyone thought we were living in New York or Boston or China. And that if you couldn't, orchestrate models of how the entire uh, environment and the uh, communication systems and everything worked, it would be very hard to optimize and make people feel as if it was all one thing that we needed to pay attention to. And so it seemed like a really worthwhile idea to try to figure out ways in which the interdependency of things really made sense. And that's why I started doing this World Game Workshop with Bucky. But it was also ironic that it was also the first time that human beings... Um, stood on the moon to see the earth uh, and could see the whole thing at once. And I, th- I think that moment was a kind of, for me, a critical moment to figure out that you needed to figure out tools that enabled people to understand large interdependent systems.
2: It was around this time that you were also making your own art. mm mm-hmm. You created a piece titled Words, 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 which consisted of an aluminum box containing poems printed by a variety of different methods on a number of different materials. And the last poem was printed on four sheets of plexiglass, and it fragmented when it was picked up. And in Art International magazine, critic John Russell said this about the piece. It is about poetry, but also about the physical act of reading poetry. And then you stated, I hope they see the words, and then I hope they see themselves, mm-hmm. which I thought was gorgeous. What did you want to show them about themselves?
0: Well, just that they're seeing words as a, a place in which you were actually assembling ideas is more interesting than seeing it as if it's something passively that you look at and just think about the, either the associations of words or just their form. I thought it was really interesting to see it as a dynamic piece, because words are really the history of people's agreement about things. We all agree that when I say word, you'll know what I mean. And I think the derivation of that has drifted away. And so I think people aren't so interested in the act of reading as a compositional thing rather than just a uh, an assemblage of thoughts.
2: I interviewed Steven Pinker on the show recently, and we talked about his belief that language is an instinct, but that writing isn't. Mm-hmm. As you were developing your art over the years, over the decades now— how have you approached words? How have you approached language? Are they one in the same for you, or, are they, or is speaking and written language something very different for you?
0: In a, an ironic way, um, writing is much more of a social act, because it requires an imagined conversation in your head, whereas sometimes speaking, like now, I'm not preparing what I'm saying fast enough, you know, so it's just being created. And the... Is the act of reading is always social because typically you're assembling things because you know someone else that you could tell it to. I mean, we rarely would really learn things or go places or do things if it wasn't someone else that we were thinking about telling about it or sharing it with. So I think that what I was trying to do with my art was making experiences that were actually engaging and that would make people either laugh or smile or get serious about something that they were thinking.
2: I read that you once wrote down everything that you know on a series of 52 canvases. Yeah. How were you able to fit everything that you know? On, I mean, you're a pretty bright guy. How did you do that? Well, really small type?
0: I saw a volume of what was, is called the Da Dian, which was a, in a third century BC, China, the emperor commissioned everyone who could write in China to write everything they knew for a year. And then they would assemble all these books, and the format of it was all the same. It was like you there was one big character, characters, and then the writing about that character. So I took that as my assignment for a year, to pick words and then write about them and draw and scribble other things about it as I preceded it, and then that was the book.
2: You've said that it thrills you that scientists are able to see neurons, and your art Mm -hmm. is what we might see if we could witness the process of thinking itself. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that, because is it possible to think without words?
0: Well, I think most of your thinking isn't in words. I think most of it is um, neuronal processing that's going on. So you're, you're, it, you it comes out as words because you think to share it. But the, how the brain works is so phenomenally interesting that we can only know that as an abstract pattern now.
2: So how or what could we see as the process of thinking in your art or, or in any art?
0: Well, hopefully the piece that you describe, each of the letters is broken up into fragments and then put on one sheet of plexiglass so that when you look at it straight forward, you see it all. But the minute you move one, from one side to the other, it all falls apart.
2: So you're playing with perspective. What I
0: was trying to do was getting you to assemble that. And some I, a series of uh, pieces that I did also was on, were on mirrors about talking about you looking at this idea and thinking about it.
2: How much fine art do you still do today?
0: I um, In the last two or three years, because um, my wife was the ambassador to Japan and so I went back and forth to Japan every month or so. Um, I couldn't get anything accomplished. It was because I didn't know where I was in the world. That's <laughs> and, I, I read that
2: you were going back every three weeks. Every three
0: weeks, yeah. That's
2: incredible. Yeah.
0: Your frequent is, flyer miles must be insane. Yeah. It's amazing that I'm still alive actually.
2: But she's back now.
0: She's back. Now.
2: So now that she's back, yes. are you back in the studio making work yes. again? Yeah. And and what kind of work are you doing?
0: I just started doing a series on assignments that I was going to give to the readers. Really? Yeah.
2: Can you give us an example? No. Oh, Edwin. Because you have to see it. I can't. Oh, that's fair enough. That's fair. That's fair. I get it. Okay. Back in the 70s, you were a co author of some of the earliest handbooks on home computers, CB radios, and pocket calculators. And your co author, John Brockman, said this about your books. Ed was not so much interested in pocket calculators as in broader issues. Whenever a new technology came into being, we were there with a book. So I have a couple of questions for you about this. First, what broader issues were you interested in? And second, what gave you the idea to publish a book about games you could play on a calculator?
0: Well, I was having dinner with my Aunt Helen, and she took out her reverse Polish notation Hewlett-Packard calculator to show everyone at the table that she had it. And I said, so Anne Helen, what are you gonna use it for? This is a really sophisticated tool. (laughs) And she said, well, once a month I do my taxes. So I figured there was a lot of time left when people had bought these calculators, which were really cool, and which allowed you to do a lot of calculation and interesting things. And they had nothing to do with them. So I figured it'd become a consumer product. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to, these games, each one of them will be directed towards learning something new about math in the process of playing the game.
2: Do you remember any of the exercises off the top of your head?
0: A a lot of them. But one of the funniest ones was, um, the name of the game was California Dreaming. And the instructions were, enter seven digits, stare at it until you forget your name. (laughs) Okay. So it was a joke, a bad joke. But, Anyways, a lot of the games were...
2: It was a bestseller, so somebody must have thought it, it was funny. Yeah.
0: It sold millions
2: of copies. I know. I know. There were two sequels. Yeah. Unbelievable. (laughs) So the books were were incredible bestsellers, translated into eight languages. And you essentially turned the calculator into the first Game Boy. Yeah. Um, But in a way that made people interact with others using their calculators versus them playing by themselves. Right. So I was curious, how important do you think the notion of community is in gaming now versus a user paired to a single device?
0: The idea of play in in human culture has always been the way in which we practice new ways of being interdependent with each other, learning skills, playing with one another. And so gaming is like a, a fantastically valuable tool. And learning how to play with others now at a distance, but I think soon much more all in the same place, I think is a critical social tool. Because I think the idea of understanding the consequence of action, like I was talking about World Game. You know, we did this World Game Workshop, and the reason why it couldn't really go farther than a workshop was because there was no data and there was no assemblage of information that you could actually play the game and make the outcomes meaningful. But now it is. And so gaming really allows people to imagine that they're not themselves And so they're playing as a role in something and then really learning something different than they would maybe let themselves do if they thought it was something of theirs. And so I think that's one of the things about interdependency and and experience, social experience, which is that you're always imagining who you're talking to and you're imagining what they're thinking about it. And it gets people to realize that an idea is only valuable if it's between people rather than in their head.
2: Do you think that all games give you the ability to be someone else or is it just electronic no, or I computer think games? No, I
0: Clue, um, mm, that's Monopoly, true. Uh, any game, poker. If you look at people playing poker, they always have their poker face on. You know, it's different them.
2: But you can always see the tells. And that's sort of the thing <laughs> yeah. I like most about poker is yeah. really seeing the person through yeah. the game. Right. Early in your career, you've said that you would conjure up designs and leave them to be executed by others, but they didn't always come out right, which led you to want to start your own company. Yet you always said you never set out to be a designer, right? and yet you are one. So what happened to change your mind?
0: Well, I think you become the thing that you want to be. And that so I couldn't claim to be a designer when I was starting because I hadn't designed anything. I mean, when I got the job to design the Brooklyn Children's Museum, I had never designed anything, which was amazing.
2: And so how did you get that job? How did that
0: happen? (laughs) I was uh, helping a friend of mine who was running the White House Conference on Children. And I organized how the discussions were going to go at this conference. And then I sat down at a table, and the man next to me was a man named Lloyd Hezekiah, who was the director of the Brooklyn Children's Museum. And we sat and talked for probably two hours. And then he asked me, I gave him, we exchanged information. And then he called me and asked me to come to the Children's Museum. And then then I got the job. And so then you had to start a company around
2: that job.
0: I started the company when the Children's Museum opened. I got the job in 1970, so it took seven years to get the Children's Museum opened.
2: You started ESI Design in 1977. Right. And today you employ around 60 people. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on 41 years in business. A design firm turning 40 years is just an extraordinary, extraordinary feat what do you attribute to your success and longevity as a designer in this incredibly changing landscape?
0: Well, probably because I had no idea what what I was doing.
2: No, I won't take that as an answer. No,
0: but I mean, I was really interested in, in the assignments and the challenge of designing something because it was like solving a complex problem. And then it was so interesting to do that. And the problems that I have been assigned have been spectacular and And I've had amazingly great clients. And so that's part of what that means. And because I didn't have a model of what having a design office meant, I didn't really understand that. And, you know, George S. Kaufman used to say that if you do anything long enough, they'll build a theater around you. And so I think that that's more of what uh, having this office for 41 years is like. I think we're kind of good at it now.
2: You've always been slightly ahead of what's happening technologically. How have you been able to stay on top of what was going to impact our culture through the decades?
0: Well, we now have a phenomenal group of people who are paying attention to what's going on in the world and looking at possibilities. And, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting is Brooklyn Children's Museum, I really wanted to have computing And um, we had this idea of doing a child recognizer because you could really detect at that point in time with very little data, you could check stride, weight, and profile. And so we could have recognized you, and then when you came back in the museum, it would say, Debbie, you've done a good job. We wanted that to happen. But it turned out that the computer that we needed to process that cost a million and a half dollars, and the total budget for the museum was $1.8 million. How
2: much would something like that cost now? $2.50.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Speaking of longevity and bringing our conversation back to my first question when I referenced Caroline, you began dating Caroline Kennedy after meeting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art where she worked. And your wedding to her in 1986 was a massive affair Carly Simon sang. Journalist George Plimpton narrated a firework display Overall, did it phase you or your work to be thrust so powerfully and suddenly into the spotlight?
0: Probably. (laughs) It was all of a piece. It's like you start dancing at 6 o'clock in the afternoon and eventually it gets to be dark and the stars are out. You know, that's what happened.
2: Well, that sounds like a picnic, not a wedding to a very, very famous family and a very, very critical time in our culture. Yeah,
0: it's been a great experience, the best part of my
2: life. You refused to grant interviews around that time, and there are even stories in the New York Times of reporters dressing up as waiters at restaurants to try to get to you. Mm. Why did you want to keep such a low profile for so long, and when did you begin to open yourself up a little bit more to the media?
0: Because at the outset, I didn't think they were asking questions about anything that was relevant to who I am. So I thought, why would I talk about nonsense?
2: And when did you start to feel like you could change or trust the media or that it wasn't all fake news? Uh, um, Not quite yet. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about some of your clients. You have had clients that include Pope John Paul II, Reuters, the World Trade Center— when you first started working on the Brooklyn Children's Museum, as, as we mentioned, your ideas about design and interactivity around the public space were pretty radical. As an example, you created a playground based on the structure of a molecule. Mm-hmm. How much convincing did you have to do to get people truly on board with what you were proposing back then?
0: When I look back on that, I think it was astonishing. They, I, I got no resistance whatsoever.
2: For the first time out of the gate for a design project and something that big, that's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, but I don't think anyone had an idea, frankly, about what I was doing. (laughs) You know, no one had seen an interactive museum before. You know, the idea that it it was a constructivist learning environment where you did things rather than you manipulated things that were already done, or that the past was the precursor of the the, future, all those ideas were just not in anyone's head. So I don't think, even today, when we do drawings in our office and we do e- even renderings or, or uh, animations, I'm not sure anyone's ever seeing the design uh, because it's very hard to really understand exactly what it's gonna look in three dimensions and how all the pieces are gonna work. So I am uh, astonished to this day that the board, who are lovely people, really brilliant, wonderful people, just said, oh, this is great. This is gonna be really fun.
2: When we took Design Matters online, we chose Wix because it's the best platform for creating websites. I also created my personal site on it, and I can tell you from experience that it's a great platform. It really has everything I need to manage and grow my business. So go to Wix.com and check it out for yourself. When you worked on the Los Angeles Children's Museum, you created bears and dogs that wouldn't do anything until a child touched them. Right. Um, And you described it as a cultural place that says, without you, this is not functioning. But given how little we are actually able to interact in most museum settings, how did you encourage the children to actually want to touch the animals?
0: It was a giant big bear and a giant big dog and a huge tree. And the idea was is that when the children came into the museum for the first time and, and then subsequently later in the day, it would all always look like the first time that they came in. And they'd have to wake up the dog bear and the tree and everything by feeding it and getting on bicycles and blowing wind on it and, and cranking up lights to put sunlight. And so the environment never worked. They had to be the vehicle through which active participation happened. Because, again, it's this thing about understanding the dynamic role that human beings play in making an environment work. So I love the idea that this place needed them in order for it to... Uh, th- there used to be a group of toys called Tamagotchis. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember yes, them. Yes, I do. Which you had to take care of. Yes. And so this was like a place that was a Tamagotchi, and it was a model of the environment. So, and there was a project that we did all the design work for, and then they never could raise the money to build it.
2: That's tragic. Yes, how much do you think the way in which children play and the way in which they interact both um, in museums and out has changed with the advent of uh, social media and our dependence on devices?
0: I think there's just an enormous amount of less silence, a sort of a zero state when you're kind of wondering. Um, and I think that that's amazing and and. And I think it fosters a sense of interdependency among people, which is really critical. But yet people have less of a sense of agency that what they do makes a difference.
2: Why do you think that?
0: Because they're working at a distance from other people. And so uh, all the things we work at are projects that try to create a sense of agency among the people working in the environment.
2: You created Hanna-Barbera Land, a cartoon-themed amusement park just outside Houston. And you designed a duuseum, great word, that demonstrates principles of animation and television. And one attraction, You Are a Star, let visitors project themselves into cartoons with Hanna-Barbera characters as Yogi Bear and Boo Boo. And this work is inherently interactive. It does require participation, How are you able to project into people's minds and anticipate what and how they're going to want to participate in something?
0: The first step of a design process of a project for us is to try to think about what the invitation is going to be to this experience, how someone would feel or understand what they were coming to experience, and that the experience would be involving, engaging with them, so that you feel as if when you go to this place, it's not going to be something that you passively can walk by, that it's something that you can engage with, and that there's a consequence of your actions.
2: How can you create an unforgettable interactive experience that is remarkable for different kinds of people? Are there common denominators in terms of that sort of seductive nature of encouraging somebody to participate?
0: Well, they're all different kinds of invitations. I I think one of the projects which I'm most excited by and pleased by is the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate, which just opened, well, not just, it will be three years in March. But it is a a full-scale replica of the Senate chamber, and a 100 people at a time go into this, this environment, and each of them is a senator, and they receive all the information about a certain day in the, in the Senate and the bills that are up for being passed or not passed. And they have to figure out how they're going to work together to make it happen. And it's three, it takes three hours. And it is a remarkably interesting, <laughs> remarkably compelling experience for all the high school kids that come and do it. And we also made it so that the platform on which this institute works, the scripts for all the different days in the life of the Senate, are made by other high school kids. So all the work is being done collaboratively, both either composing the work or playing the the work. And the level of engagement of people having to take, stand up and defend policies that they don't like, because they want to learn how to collaborate and how to reach consensus, is a thing that I think is a critical ingredient of contemporary life.
2: And a critical ingredient of our being able to prosper as a society and as a culture. Mm -hmm. How do you plot the journey that people take through these types of experiences? If somebody starts here, they're going to go there. If somebody starts there, then they move there. Is that something you think about?
0: Yeah, we do storyboards, use model storyboards of all the different players in the game and how they work with one another.
2: All four of your great-grandparents were Ellis Island immigrants who were born within 50 miles of one another in Russia. Right. And ESI was chosen to design the Ellis Island American Family Immigration Center, giving people a chance to interact with the exhibits and find out if their own families passed through the gateway to the United States. And you've said that your whole life began on Ellis Island, which I think is a really beautiful line. So, how personal was that project for you?
0: It was a, a knockout. It was just amazing.
2: From what I read, and I wasn't exactly sure how this happened, but you ended up finding your own family's names through the interaction and the data that you were given?
0: I didn't know for sure because stories were lean on facts. Um, and so I didn't know for sure that they had when they had come and exactly how old they were when they came and where they, you know. So, but Ellis Island is the best boundary in the world in, in the sense of having information, because they not only asked name and age and, and sex, but they asked where you started from, where you embarked from, where you were going, and what were you carrying with you. And the thing that was so astonishing about that one question was that somewhere like 40 or 50 percent of the people brought tools with them. That's what they brought with them. They brought... You know, writing tools, they brought chisels, they brought woodworking tools. So they'd tools. have something to be yes, able to make a were, living doing. because they right? were people who knew they had to survive and that they were all skilled in, in crafts. You know, it's sort of an amazing lesson about what immigration, what the, the huge benefit of, of immigration is to the countries that people immigrate to. Because the, all the people who came, came to work and to make things.
2: You found in the database the name Abraham Hirsch. Right. And he was a grandfather who arrived in New York Harbor in 1903. What was he carrying?
0: He was carrying his tools for prayer, and he was carrying eight books that he had handwritten.
2: Did he come by himself?
0: I don't remember exactly. I think he came with three brothers and two cousins and one adult.
2: As a Jewish man, what was it like working for the Pope? (laughs) Um, and how did you get the job? <laughs> it's, um, a very, it's very open-minded of the Pope.
0: Um, the cardinal from Detroit was in charge of the project. And so he called up one day and said he'd like to see me. And so I went to Detroit to see him. And we talked about uh, doing the job. And then he said, you know, if you really do a really good job, you might go to heaven. And I said, um, so I don't believe in heaven, so (laughs) is there anything else you think you...
2: And you still got the job admitting that you don't believe in heaven. Yeah, Wow, they must have really wanted you. Did you get to meet the Pope? I did. And what was that like?
0: It was uh, amazing. It was also amazing to go through the archives at the Vatican. That was one of the more amazing events of my life. In what way? Well, because so many amazing treasures are sitting there in this archive which is not air conditioned or uh, environmentally controlled. It's eight stories below the ground uh, in the Vatican. And uh, we went through one room and someone pulled out a drawer. I went with the the director of the the archive and he pulled out a drawer and there was a letter from Peter. (laughs) Peter who? Peter, Saint Peter. Oh, wow. On papyrus, just sitting in a drawer.
2: I'm surprised it hasn't disintegrated. Uh, no,
0: it, everything is it's because the humidity never changes in this place. Oh. Nothing, uh, no air changes. So the temperature never changes. Humidity never changes. So that's a very good thing for keeping things uh, going. So, and then I asked the head of the archive, uh, there were a lot of things I wanted to display in the museum. And he and I said, do you have an inventory that I can look through? So that, because that would accelerate our ability to do it. And he said, we have 7% of our, work inventoried in about 5% that has been annotated. And I said, excuse me if this sounds disrespectful, but you've had it a long time. <laughs> uh, well, how come so little? And he said, what's the hurry?
2: Oh, wow. I love those kinds of existential yeah. moments.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was huge.
2: That's incredible. Yeah. What else did you see that sort of blew your mind?
0: Seeing the map rooms. I'm, I'm obsessed with maps, and, and uh, they have maps... The idea that a church or religion would basically own all the maps on Earth uh, is really interesting.
2: Your recent work on the historic Terrell Place lobby in Washington, D.C. is really beautiful. Hmm. Um, Your team created 1,700 square feet of colorful digital scenes using 5 million LEDs that cover the walls, things like blooming cherry blossoms, multicolored tapestries, butterflies. Not only are the scenes motion interactive, but they're crafted using algorithms to ensure that they are always unique and original. And it made me think that everything you do feels somehow personal to these people that are passing through the space because they're never, ever going to be seen again. How do you deliver experiences that are so personal?
0: Our office is filled with astonishing people, and the team together is composing these experiences. So, you know, a really good composition is one that is multi-voiced and also multi-intentioned, so that you know that you're talking and speaking and making things with lots of people in mind. And the the tarot Place thing is also cool because we put cameras in the ceiling and people moving through the space actually interrupt the flow of the media and change it all the time so that you feel as if you're amongst the drivers of the experience in the room that you're in rather than thinking of it It is something that's autonomic and, and it doesn't have anything to do with you.
2: Yeah, actually, I think the word personal is probably wrong in, yeah. in that question. It was really more intimate in terms of this ephemeral nature of life and living and time, and you're going through this interactive display, this lobby, and nothing will ever be repeated. Right. And, and there's something really, really wonderful about that, and also really heartbreaking.
0: Um, well, I haven't thought about the heartbreaking part, but I, the rest of it, I think, yeah, that was the goal.
2: Where does interactivity fail us?
0: If you think that it's more than that, The idea that something has been composed to be interdependent and interactive is because the goal of the company that paid for it and the space and the designers was to make something that would be surprising and engaging and also not repetitive since most of the things we do, people go back and back and back over and over again. So it's to make life more natural, which is that it's never really predictable.
2: In 2011, Barack Obama appointed you to the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts. So what kind of work does this entail? And are you still doing anything with that?
0: No. um, The Fine Arts Commission judges the designs for all the buildings in Washington. They also judge the coins that are made by the mint. And they judge some of the gardens and some of the other aesthetic work in Washington. So it it was really interesting to do that and a number of really interesting designers and architects have been on that commission. So it's really fun to do it. And I did it for three years and then when my wife got appointed to be ambassador to Japan, I resigned because if I had to go on one more plane trip, I would have died. So I had to stop.
2: And my last question is one about how you refer to yourself all through your life you've been framed as a renaissance man and to this that day old no, it doesn't. You were referred to as a you were referred to as a Renaissance man in Andy Warhol's diary, and to this day it would be a fair assessment of your varied output. It really would be. So, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an artist, as an interactive designer? How would you describe? I, I read that you once scoffed at this type of question and answered that you're a nuclear accountant right. because it doesn't mean anything. Right. But do you still feel that way today? How would you How yes, would you describe yourself aside from way. a nuclear accountant?
0: Independently healthy.
2: Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you for answering that question. (laughs) Edwin Schlossberg, thank you for the many, many contributions you've made to art and design and culture, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. It's been fun. And happy anniversary. 40 years. That's that's big. Thank you. You can find out more about Edwin Schlossberg and ESI on their website esidesign.com This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Debbie's new book, "Why Design Matters: Conversations with the World's Most Creative People," is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.